Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, Dr. Mannion. Thank you very much for being with me here today and agreeing to be interviewed by the New, Book, New Books Network. Thank you for having me. I look forward to talking with you. Thank you. My name is Leo Valdez. I am a graduate student in the history department at Rutgers University, and I am your host for the recently launched LGBTQ Studies channel on the New Books Network. Today, I will be interviewing Dr. Jen Mannion, Associate Professor of History at Amherst College. Dr. Mannion is a social and cultural historian whose work examines the role of gender and sexuality in American life. They are the author of numerous articles and two books, Liberty's Prisoners, Carceral Culture in Early America, published in 2015, and Female Husbands, A Trans History, published this year in 2020. And today, we're going to be talking about Female Husbands, A Trans History. So, Dr. Mannion, let me just start off by saying first that I really loved your book. Uh, As a trans person myself and a trans graduate student doing trans history, I found reading it to be a very meaningful experience, and I think the book makes significant contributions to many fields of research. So again, thank you for being here today and for publishing the book in general, because it's fantastic. (laughs) Well, uh, it means so much to me that it means something to you that it for both personally and intellectual, you know, for both personal and intellectual reasons. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Also, before we begin, I just want to state that both Jen Mannion and I belong to, in one way or another, the history department at Rutgers University. That's where you got your PhD, correct? Sorry. It's the best history department. I'm so grateful um, that I got to train and study and be an intellectual community there because it's a really special place. Mm. Absolutely. I, I, I feel the same way. When did you graduate from Rutgers again? In 2008. Okay. I was still in high school then. <laughs> <laughs> Different generations of queer people, but same institution. (laughs) Who still find their way to the best places to do uh, Mm -hmm. a PhD in history Mm -hmm. for queer people and with activist politics and, you know, intersectional commitments. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So let's start talking a little bit about female husbands. Throughout the book, I was well aware, as you make us aware from the beginning, that you're in conversation with a large historiography, much of it, which actually comes from Rutgers itself, which with which has such a strong history in women's and gender literature and African-American women's history in particular. And I don't know if listeners know this, but the Berkshire Conference was actually the graduate student conference at the history department at Rutgers, and then it became the Berkshire Conference. So... Female Husbands, I definitely saw in conversation with so many books and so many of the subjects, the archival subjects like Joseph Lobdell, um, appear in many other people's accounts. And one thing you write, which I thought was very important, and I'll, I'll quote you, is that it has been common practice for scholars to minimize gender differences and to elevate same-sex attraction as a driving force behind such partnerships. And you're talking here, of course, about female husbands and female wives. So I wondered if you could talk about talk about this, one of this, this singular intervention, which is, you know, how exactly what you say, elevating same-sex attraction at the expense of understanding what gender nonconformity meant in different historical time periods. Right. I mean, you know, when you, you say it, and we think about it now from the year 2020 as trans queer people, it seems so obvious, right? Mm. But I think there are two main reasons why 
the scholarship has historically done exactly what you and I just said, which is emphasize same-sex attraction and relationships regardless of the gender expression of those people. Um, One is, I think, the early, you know, wave of people doing this work in the academy um, were predominantly lesbian and gay-identified people um, trying to recover homosexuality and and same-sex relationships, right? So anyone assigned female became a subject, you know, for that narrative. And, and, And we get a lot of people who, you know, we really don't know actually how they would have identified in terms of their sexual orientation either, um, but they become popular yeah. subjects for LGBT history because we were so desperate. The other impetus, I think, is, you know, less less of a, a problem of historians and activists making and more of what happened at the turn of the century itself. And I do, th- I think that is one of the interventions of the book, which is, sexologist and then historians writing about sexology at the turn of the century really putting female assigned people through the same analytical uh viewfinder that they were putting male homosexuality and so again just minimizing the role of gender nonconformity and see putting these people joseph lobdell is a perfect example um as someone who, despite the fact that their gender and their masculinity was obviously the defining trait of their life, that they were characterized as being overly sexual and aggressive um, and a sexual invert in their attraction to women. So it's something that sexology did, historians writing about sexology perpetuate it. And then of course, gay and lesbian Historians in the 70s, 80s, and 90s also perpetuate it. Hmm. That's really interesting. And it's so different than what we're seeing right now because trans history is coming up in a different kind of historical moment where, from what I see, people are more critical of just attaching a trans label to anybody in the past as with that activist intent that you're speaking about. And that's certainly something that you don't do in your book. It's even though, well, I guess, I guess let's get into that a little bit. The, the title is very interesting. Um, female husbands, a trans history. I think that it can be interpreted in so many different ways, a title by itself. Of course, when you read the book and when you know how rooted and grounded it is in historical methodology, you see that this is the, the trope of the time and you're, you're reinterpreting female husbands, but, but at the same time, does it risk, um, does it risk applying that sexed notion to, to assign female bodies or to people assigned female at birth? Do you, do you think that, did you think about that when you chose the title or yeah, talk to me a little bit, please, about how you chose the title. So the category female husband is, is a historic term. I didn't make it up, right? It's mm-hmm. something that comes from the archive and mostly from newspapers. So that phrase itself was used throughout history for almost 200 years um, to describe people. And so part of what I think the next wave of trans history is about is, you know, what we need to do to build like a really dynamic and robust way of understanding our complicated pasts is to get real specific, right, about who and what we're talking about. So by just saying, I'm going to take this one category and getting real specific and just honing in on that and seeing what that meant to people across time and place that I can sort of just give us like, it's like one taxon. It's a one part of a larger taxonomy of gender variance for the 18th and 19th century. So in that case, in that way, the book is very traditional in its um, adherence to rigorous historic method. At the same time, short of saying I'm talking about transgender people or putting 
that signifier identifier on to these people, which I don't ever do, and I don't think is actually accurate, I am writing and thinking and researching within this tradition of trans studies and trans history. So the very language that we use, the questions that we're able to ask now are really a result of the transgender, you know, rights movement and community and transgender studies of the last 20 to 30 years that have gotten us to this place. So it was very important for me to signal that the book is part of that intellectual tradition. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That makes a lot of sense in terms of not applying transgender to these subjects that you don't do throughout the book, but the phrase transing gender or people who transgender is, is used throughout the entire book, which is an intervention of transgender studies and transgender activism in the, con- in the more contemporary period. Would you say that was correct? Oh yeah. Yeah. No, that's def- that that's correct. And in that way, the book is for us, right? And it's meant to be legible to people in the trans community who use these kind, you know, who use this kind of language to understand it. And so I think it walks a fine line. There's definitely some tension there um, in terms of balancing and negotiating, you know, rigorous historic method that's so resistant to anachronistic categories, um, but also saying that, listen, history is for the living (laughs) and, you know, we deserve actually to have a more nuanced, updated understanding of an engagement with people who lived in the past. And we can use our own language and our own way of understanding the world to try to make under, to try to make sense of the past. Absolutely. All history is history of the present yes. in some ways. Yes. <laughs> On that note, I I think the reference to tension in in the way we do trans history and with the need for trans history in the present moment and why we need trans history. I'm curious about the production of Female Husbands because it was published in 2020, which is only five years after you published your first book. And it's also coming out on the wave of a, a, f- several books on trans history in between 2015 and 2020. Claire Sears published Arresting Dress, um, Cross-Dressing Law in, and Fascination in San Francisco in 2015. And then C. Riley Snorton, Black on Both Sides, A Racial History of Trans Identity in 2017. And Emily Skidmore, True Sex, The Lives of Trans Men at the Turn of the 20th Century in 2017 as well. And then, of course, Histories of the Transgender Child by Jules Jill Peterson in 2018. So there's this huge cohort. And before... Arresting Dress, I believe that it was only Susan Stryker's Transgender History in 2008. And then before that, um, Joanne Mayerowitz's um, How Sex Changed. <laughs> I'm very rooted in trans history, as you can tell. So I have all these dates <laughs> very memorized and in my head because yeah. it's really only a handful, you know. <laughs> but so I'm so curious to know who who you were most influenced by and how you were influenced by this moment in these past five, 10 years of so much, so much scholarship on trans history. Well, it's funny because, you know, all of the books you listed are also such different books from each other. And I think that is exciting and just shows the tremendous range. Um, And like just the interdisciplinary potential for trans histories. Um, I believe you know, Claire Sears is a historical sociologist, right? So I think that book, Arresting Dress, is the first major monograph to operationalize transing as a verb in a really productive way, right? So even though that was kind of coined in, you know, numerous articles by Susan Stryker and Paisley Carra and others earlier, Uh, you know, it comes to life um, as a historic analytic in Claire Sears' book, and then, of course, also in C. Riley Snorton's book. Um, And C. Riley Snorton is an interdisciplinary 
scholar with their training in communication studies. So I think the first thing that I think about when I think about this cluster of books is a lot of people writing trans history have interdisciplinary training, not in history. Um, and how has that shaped the methodology and the questions asked, you know, but I would say, so both of those books, you know, definitely influenced female husbands as well as Emily Skidmore. I mean, so Emily Skidmore's book is probably the most traditional history book. Um, and we have, you know, we probably a, a couple people appear in uh, both of our books. And I think part of what distinguishes Emily Skidmore's book from the other two is that she claims, uh, you know, that her subjects are trans men, right? And so she kind of offers us language that's more fixed and translatable to the present in terms of identifying her subjects as trans men. Um, and so I think for people researching, for, for you, for grad students working in this field right now, actually, there's some great ways that our books kind of complement each other, but then also like bump up against each other um, for you to think about your own methodological investments and terminology as you grapple with your own archive. Absolutely. Because uh, what I think is that each one of those methodological interventions make important political interventions in terms of where trans lives are in the current moment. So absolutely. And I, I, and I didn't mean to skip the transgender child, which is just so robust. I mean, the archive um, that Jules has, has put together to help us contextualize the role, the real importance and real central role of children and young people um, in the you know, early sexology and early work in, you know, the gender clinic at Johns Hopkins and elsewhere is just a tremendous contribution to our understanding of, you know, questions that are really prominent and really contentious right now, um, especially in the UK, right? Um, and so I see their work is 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 really offering us, you know, the long durée view of you know the role of children in childhood and transing gender in a really important way both intellectually and politically. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I completely agree. And going back to what you said earlier about how each one of these books is doing something different, that is definitely true. And that's a, the reality of a field that's so new and that is really taking off that there's so much room to explore so many different ways that, that you can think about trans history and interpret gender variant people from the past. And so I do have a question about this concerning specifically your choice of pronouns usage, because in terms of the two books that are the closest to yours methodologically, I think is Claire Sears, Arresting Dress and Emily Skidmore. And all three of you d use different, different pronouns. Claire Sears uses he, she, and they, depending on the way that they read historical evidence, for example, if someone um, in, the, in the conclusion, someone was arrested 25 times and, and they state, I will never stop wearing men's clothes, no matter how much, how many times you arrest me. And so Claire Sears uses he pronouns for them. And Emily Skidmore, as, as you mentioned, only uses he or, or mostly uses he, I believe, mm -hmm. and then you only use they. And to quote you again, <laughs> um, you, you say that Embracing he pronouns would stabilize manhood in a way that does not capture the experience of all female husbands across their lifespan, as several embraced a non-binary gender. Can you talk a little bit more about this, please? So, so that's, that's definitely true. And that was uh, one of the driving forces that several of the people who identified as female husbands kind of moved between gender um, and, and moved around gender over the course of their life and, and, and seemingly voluntarily, right? So obviously some people 
when they're identified, when they're living as men and they're identifying as being assigned female, they get forced um, into presenting as women, right? So I'm, I'm not really talking about them because we know that, that that was not really their choice. But there's another group of people who seem to move back and forth uh, between gender expressions um, of male and female depending on the broader circumstances of their lives. And so in those cases, it not only did it just not seem accurate or true to the lives they lived, um, but it would for, you know, you know, anyway, so, so that was like one reason for saying uh, using Mm -hmm. they just creates expansive possibility. It doesn't put, it doesn't, it doesn't claim a gender. Even though now they is for some people a gendered category, right? It's not just a gender neutral; it is a gender, and 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 for non-binary people, for example. So in that way, they honors the potential for a non-binary life while also not falsely gendering anyone else. Um, it also saves me. I think historians who sometimes write about trans and queer people in the past claim to know too much and just like Mm. more than they really do or speak with like too much certainty about Mm. another's gender identity. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And I didn't want to do it. And just like I would say by telling you my pronoun, I'm not telling you anything about my gender identity you know, for me personally, Mm -hmm. like, it's just, Mm -hmm. they're not just like equal. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I didn't want to be that person. Um, I feel like most historians writing about these subjects in the past have been that person of claiming too much knowledge and certainty about someone's gender identity, and erroneously so. And that is part of what gave us this flat, really conservative um, approach to most people in the past who transgender and that I wasn't going to do that with this book. That makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. And I'm really, I'm just so thrilled that, you know, historians are doing this kind of work and, and you're right that gender doesn't equate to pronouns. I only use they, them pronouns, but I have multiple genders, for example. Right. (laughs) Yeah. So yeah. Um, and just building off of that, you mentioned somewhere in your book that um, this is both a social history and a cultural history, and it's both a history of the category of female husband throughout those 200 years, the rise and fall of it, and also of the social lives of people. And I think your book does a brilliant job of balancing those two methods, those two types of, of looking at history and change over time. And in terms of the social history aspect of it, I was really struck by the role of violence and punishment and discipline mm-hmm. that that plays out in the lives of these people. And in particular, chapter one on Ch- Charles Hamilton, mm-hmm. j- just leading with that. And for the listeners, not to have a spoiler, but Charles Hamilton was assigned female at birth and they were whipped publicly four times in four separate towns and then sentenced to six months of hard labor for only being themselves. And and this was before the growth of the carceral state in the United States, which you then tackle later in the in the 1850 to 1900 period with it, which is another separate question. But um it, it, th- th- I just thought that was really important. Um and I wondered if you might talk a little bit more about the role of violence and the carceral state and its significance to trans history and what more work needs to be done on that front. Yeah. Well, I think one of the key parts of, you know, Charles Hamilton's, you know, encounter with, you know, carceral authorities is that in most, for most of history, in most of these cases, they didn't actually break a law. Like they're like uh, so, policing authorities um, who learn that someone assigned female is living as a man, they rarely know what to charge them with because 
until really the late 19th century, there's not like an explicit law either, you know, in many cases against same-sex sexual intimacies between women because sodomy laws were rarely applied to women or cross-dressing, right? So a, a lot of people, you know, in this case, I think, get the formal charges vagrancy, which is a very vague mm-hmm. catch-all category of social disorder, right? That's used for so many different things. Um, but, you know, part of what we think uh, the issue with Charles Hamilton was, it's not just that they were living as a man. It's also that they'd entered into a legal marriage with a woman who mm-hmm. then turned on Hamilton and said, I don't want to be in this marriage anymore. And so that it was really, and that, that the woman testified to their sexual intimacies and that for a certain period of time claimed that even while having sex, she always thought that Hamilton was a man. So there's something about them having sex and that being you know, on the record for authorities and the fact that they had a legal marriage certificate um, that were really, you know, was too much. And that that is part of probably what led to such violence, um, directed at Hamilton. Many of the later cases where people get outed and someone runs to the police to, you know, to try to turn them in or say what, you know, people just don't know. The police don't know what to do. The judges don't know what to do. And, Mm -hmm. and a lot of times people get detained uh, for a short period of time and then released um, on charges of vagrancy. So there's, you know, people who transgender are just defying so many different categories. And so there's some subjective sensibility that what they're doing is not right or, you know, conforming to the social order, but there's not any clear sense of what exactly they've done wrong. Mm. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. It reminds me of the female sailors who were single and who sometimes were heralded in the press, unlike Charles Hamilton, who was not. Um, and you do you do draw attention to. Correct me if I'm wrong, but the confluence of gender nonconformity and quote unquote same sex sex and sexuality as during a specific historical moment, when both of those combine, it's very threatening. And at other points in time, someone could be gender nonconforming. And if they're not in a sexual relationship or if they're in a sexual relationship with a man, then the threat is less. Correct. I thought that was very fascinating. Um, well, and I think that's one reason why female soldiers are widely known about in literary studies and history and pop culture and celebrated, and female husbands are not. Because at the end of most accounts of female soldiers, they abandoned their male gender expression and, you know, become, you know, social, social women, right? and often enter into heterosexual marriages with men. So there's just a whole stabilizing normative um, thing that happens in those accounts. And that somehow they're in, you know, one year, 10 years, uh, you know, whatever length of time they, that they transgender and lived as men just gets like totally washed away and, and absolved by heterosexual marriage and gender nonconformity. And that just blows my mind. Um, so I did want to talk a little bit about female soldiers in conversation with husbands, because I think, you know, okay, so you live as a man for 10 years, like that changes you. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. you're not a cisgender person. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. No that that you're definitely part of the trans community there. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, and regardless of the decision that you might make later in life, and it might be, you know, even if it includes changing your gender again. Mm-hmm. Mm. Interesting. So 
you're you're alluding to the the conscious choice of assembling your archive and putting female husbands in conversation with female soldiers. Um, another one of those choices was your chapter on the wives, which I thought was really interesting and a chapter in and of itself, a pretty big intervention because one of the, well, well, two things. One, you note that the leverage that these people have over their female husbands because they can disclose them at any time and, and they have power in that relationship that may be different from a more a cisgender heterosexual relationship. But also secondly, you discuss how female wives have been left out of queer, queer and trans history, um, LGBTQ history. And, you know, often reflecting the archive where they have to, where they're perhaps coerced into claiming, oh, I had no idea that my husband was trans. Yeah. <laughs> so what, why was it important for you to include this chapter? You know, I want to write more about queer wives. I feel like I just like, you know, scratch the tip of the iceberg um, on them. And I hope there's more work on them. It's so tempting in trans studies and trans history to only focus on the trans people themselves and not to really try to understand their friends and lovers and, you know, the other people in their lives who also affirmed and enabled their transition. And so I think that's one of, you know, the reasons why I try to spend more time thinking about the significance of queer wives. And yes, as you said, like, you know, I think there is, you know, for some people, it's tempting to think of these relationships as really normative and, and heteronormative and, and not transgressive in any way. And I think the point that you just highlighted is one reason why that's not true at all, because uh, a, a female wife of a female husband had tremendous power, uh, you know, that she could turn on her husband and out them to authorities, right? And that some, some of them did. And that there was a certain amount of leverage uh, because of the nature, the role of secrecy in their relationship um, that other women married to, you know, cisgender men did not have, right, in the 18th and 19th century. Mm-hmm. And also, on the flip side of that, some of the wives are harassed after their husbands die when they're newly widows and their sex is uh, disclosed. They're har- harassed by the press. So it's terrible. It is, yeah. I yeah, mean, they're, they're totally. part of the community. It just, it, it makes mm-hmm. no sense to treat them as, you know, not part of the community. They're harassed. They're, uh, they're threatening because they are a sign that, you know, any old regular woman might find a female husband more attractive than a male husband, right? Or to use contemporary terms, that more women might actually be attracted uh, to trans men uh, than to cisgender men. And that does start to come up as a theme at, you know, the end of the 19th century, Um, Mm -hmm. which is, uh uh-oh, you know, what is going on in these relationships that make them different? And why do some women seem to prefer them? Um, That it Mm -hmm. is a threat to heterosexual marriage and also the stability of a notion of sexual difference. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Which becomes very important as sexology comes on the rise, which is getting inscribed by sexology at that later time at the late 19th century. It's really a bad time for us. (laughs) (laughs) It really is. Uh (laughs) Well, okay. So one question I definitely want to ask you is about the role of periodization as a concept, as a method, as, as an, as something that is so important to historians, you know, me being in history department, being trained, I've coming to realize just how important periodization is where you mm. begin and end the book, how things, how you chart change over time and how you give significance to that. And because trans history is so new and so interdisciplinary, I think periodization, my, you know, assessment of the field is that we're still working on it. And especially 
when you take race into consideration and you you discuss the role of slavery, you discuss the role of the anti-slavery abolition movement and how, and how the anti-abolition mo- or sorry, anti-slavery movement, the abolition movement and the anti-slavery movement uh, started occurring before the more formal women's rights movement and how that's when people started to say, oh, you're an you're an anti-slavery advocate woman. You are a mannish person. I am discrediting your your claims, your arguments for the abolition of slavery on the basis of you being a mannish masculine person. So I guess there were two questions wrapped in there that we can take separately, um, but that I think are both important, the role of race and also the role of periodization. Yeah, well, I think that example is so important. And it's it's another sign, I think, that those of us doing trans history need to not focus myopically only on trans subjects, um, mm. but that there are larger discourses around gender um, in which that are shaping the possibilities and constraints on trans people and on everyone, right? And so mm. the fact that one way to discredit women of all races, but definitely white women and, and black women a little bit differently. I'll talk about that next. But so one way to discredit white women who had radical politics that were anti-racist and working towards abolition was to call them mannish, right? So, um, and, and, you know, a tremendous body of images and, and writing during, you know, in the early 19th century, you know, these caricatures, um, of mannish women and masculine women, um, as a way to belittle and undermine their intellectual and political claims. So, you know, we have to think about trans people and in relationship to that, right? Because that's the world in which, in which they're living, you know, C. Riley Snorton, more powerfully and successfully than anyone, has really illustrated that this, like, especially I think the parts, you know, his work on the mid 19th century, uh, especially around slavery and the the way that one way that racism worked was this idea that around the fungibility of gender, um, so that black women were never fully granted or entitled to the rights and respects of womanhood and that black men were never fully respected or entitled to uh, the rights and responsibilities of manhood. And that that's like the fundamental way that, you know, racialized gender norms were Mm. very particular in the 19th century for African-Americans. And so the starting ending point in the whole conversation around transing um, is distinct because of the way that racial slavery shaped what was possible. And it's like a real caution, of course, for trans studies Mm -hmm. from falling back on, you know, white trans experiences as in any way being like a neutral or a universal experience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And it brings to mind also Joseph Lobdell, who has a long life, but part of it involved him going out West during a moment of continual colonization of Native American territories. Um, and the way that his his freedom in terms of living as a man during that period before he was again, um, disclosed and harassed for it was, was through working in this, working through perpetuating settler colonialism, as you discuss. Yeah, that's a really intense part of Lobdell's story mm -hmm. um, that somebody could do more with, I think. It's, 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 it's very complex because also I think that we don't want to foreclose the possibility, the possibility and the reality of gender variance amongst non-white people either. You know, by saying that um, that non that black people, which is true, were not granted the privileges of womanhood or manhood. 
at the same time, gender variant black people, you know, existed. Of course. Uh, you know, I, I talk a little bit, I think about some of, um, mm. I think, I think somebody's name was Charles, was Charles Will, Williams. Williams. Yeah. Charles Williams. Yes. So one of the problems is when black trans people are mentioned in the press, they often aren't given full names. Mm. So just as, you know, a, a tool of racism under slavery, right? That so many black men and women were not given last names. And so when black trans people are mentioned and referenced in the press, they're harder to track down and really kind of understand more, you know, to kind of reconstruct a biography of their lives. Um, they're, they're harder to figure out um, than many of the white trans figures who are given more recognition. Um, so that's just a fact. But of course, there are definitely black trans people in the 19th century. Newspapers mention them anecdotally all the time. And I think one of the problems for assigned female people, in, especially in the first half of the 19th century, who were African-American, is any time someone who was assigned female, transgender, and lived uh, as a man and presented as a man as a part of moving around or escaping enslavement, it was their gender expression and their gender transgression is always reduced to just one thing. Like, well, they just did that so that they could have some mobility to escape slavery. And, and, and the next move in trans studies is for us to say, well, maybe there were multiple, right, motivating factors. And, and, and did this person, you know, persist and continue in living as a man, but, you know, before or after they made this move, you know, because it's, that kind of reduction is so common and so easy. And you see it with soldiers and sailors, too. And my, you know, well, so-and-so was a patriot. And so, you know, the only way they could fight in war was if they did it as a man. And then my first thought is like, but, but then why didn't everybody do it, right? Like if transing gender is so easy and it just gives you like a better life, like why didn't every single <laughs> AFAB person throughout history do it? You know, right. like, Absolutely. Just... <laughs> that's, yeah, <laughs> that's always been my question, too. Like, <laughs> that assumption really doesn't make much sense that the motivating factor for, to be trans is because you want to make more money as a man or have more mobility for everyone, right? That that assumption holds true always in all times. Yes. And or I that... think that's one way that historians, in my view, have been too comfortable in asserting their clarity like they actually knew what was going on. And I think trans studies is forcing a more complex analytic um, mm -hmm. around how we think about these lives. Absolutely. Absolutely. And the conversation is making me think too about your point earlier that trans history has to think about not have a myopic focus on trans people, but also the larger context because gender variants is always in conversation with gender normativity. Exactly. Otherwise it wouldn't be gender variance. Yes. And just because I thought it was an important chapter um, and moment just for listeners is that I loved how you put yourself in conversation with Talitha LaFloria's book, Chained in Silence, who writes about um, incarcerated black women in the post emancipation period in the South. And, in your discussion of Charles Williams, who was a assigned female at birth person who African-American who lived and worked as a sailor, and then his assigned sex was disclosed and he was incarcerated. And there's a difference there between Northern and Southern prisons um, and the, the violence that goes on in both spaces, but in different ways about gender. I don't know if you um, have anything more to say about that. Uh, but I, I thought it was really important that you that you put yourself in conversation with with chained in silence. Yeah, I mean, I think in the north, there, you know, again, especially in that time, there's just still a rigid binary um, rooted in whiteness about men's work and women's work, mm -hmm. and that prisons are organized uh, along those lines. 
And, you know, what Talithia Lafloria shows us in the South is that is not true at all. Um, and that Black people, including Black women and Black people assigned female at birth, are treated brutally and expected to engage in, you know, very burdensome and dangerous forms of manual labor. And that that's just a feature of the carceral state in the way that it is racialized and gendered. And yes, different in the North than in the South. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Charles Williams was forced to wear females clothes, which is the opposite of what happens to, I forget their name, but one of the principal characters in LaFloria's book. But the violence endemic is endemic to both. Yes, I, I agree. I have a question now about your acknowledgments, actually, the acknowledgment sections of your book. You have a little paragraph in your acknowledgments that is devoted to thanking the organizations and the state historical societies and the university fellowships that funded your research. And you specifically mentioned that you're amazed that they funded this research, number one, and that there are many important dissertations in LGBTQ history that have been completed only to lose institutional support upon graduation. And that's not something that you always find in the acknowledgement section of a book. <laughs> and I wondered, why did you include it? And what is your assessment right now about that situation? It's the historical profession is, has been and continues to be incredibly homophobic and transphobic. And it functions both at the level of uh, scholarship, so what kind of work is deemed important um, and worthy of a, a tenure track position in a college or university, what kind of subject matter is deemed essential. And then it also happens at the personal level, you know, for LGBTQ individuals themselves, right? And, and what the institutional cultures are like and whether we're welcome and seen as able, you know, to be a part of the departments. And so much important work in LGBT history has been done outside of academic history, partly because the academy and, you know, many of the prominent funding sources for scholarly research don't value you know, LGBTQ history. So all of that is just a fact. Um, and if you scratch the surface and, and poke around, many of us, many, LG, you know, who are openly queer and trans and have tenured positions in places, a sizable chunk of us have first projects that were not explicitly LGBTQ. And I'm definitely one of those people. Um, so I, you know, I think as I was getting support for this project, it, it was, you know, surprising to me and it was wonderful. And I'm also aware of how many of my friends and colleagues, including, you know, people I went to Rutgers with who did really, really important, amazing projects in the field of LGBTQ history who did not get those fellowships. And, have not ended up um, with academic teaching jobs um, who wanted them. So I think it was just important to me to just like put that out there that this is not just inevitable. It's not like all of a sudden we've arrived and now the world loves queer history. Um, that there's, you know, that it's a struggle and that we support each other and we have a pretty tight community um, in many ways, I think that comes together around. Uh, the CLGBTH, which is that, you know, an independent but affiliated society of the AHA. Yes, it's the first institutional association that I joined. <laughs> oh, yeah. Good. Good job. <laughs> uh, that's a very sobering answer, to be honest, um, as someone doing LGBTQ history, but also aware that I'm doing it at this point in time and not in 2008. Um, you know, when you graduated or before. 
Um, but also in particular, what you said about the discipline of history and not just that a lot of the scholarship comes out outside of academia, but all a lot of it, most of it comes from outside of history. Yes. Capital, capital H history. It does. Why, why is capital H history like that? And is it always going to be like this? I don't know. I mean, when I see, um, you know, how, how much important work in transgender history is, comes from outside of history departments, uh, you know, I think it was just inevitable because history is so transphobic. And I, I, don't, I don't know what to say. I mean, I think that, I, I don't know. That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> Transphobia is systemic, you know. Right. It's, it's part of our lives. It's ongoing. I remember I've been out as trans for a little bit over a decade, and I remember thinking that, I remember at one point I was like, you know what? It it doesn't really get better necessarily. You just get used to it, you uh-huh. know? So. Well, you get used to it and you develop a community of support networks and resources and friends and social, right? I mean, you, 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 you find your people and your, and your spaces. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. So. I have a, a, a couple more questions. I don't want to keep you for too long. We have been talking for close to an hour. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, please let me know um, if if you need to go soon. But I, I do have a couple more questions only. And one of them is, is what areas in trans history and LGBTQ history more broadly, you see as necessary to keep developing the field. And we've talked about them a little bit, you know, with the wives chapter, but specifically this question, you what know, do you I see? I just as think there's so important? much, as you said, what well, there's basically like five books, you know, in transgender history. Now there are lots of articles and I think, you know, so many, you know, Susan Stryker, has published a dozen or more, you know, pathbreaking articles that have defined this whole field. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's definitely more work being done in article form, but transgender history is just wide open. It, it just seems like limitless potential in my mind at this point, especially for projects that are trying to put trans subjects if that's their focus inside a broader conversation of how gender mm. was functioning in the time and place. I think the other key intervention, you know, that people are talking about, and I think, you know, Jules Gill Peterson is one of the people among others, Emily Skidmore actually has a great essay on this too, um, about trans trans history's whiteness problem. And, mm you know, people really taking seriously, as you will in your project, um, you know, the experiences of black and brown and indigenous and Asian trans people, and that that's a whole world of trans experience and history that is just dramatically under-researched right now. Mm -hmm. Um, That can change a lot and tell us a lot of different things than we currently know. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. And I, I would agree. There's a little bit more now, I think, on critiquing whiteness and and nuancing white people's, white trans people's experiences. Whiteness is an enabling factor for transness, all of that, and a little bit less on, okay, what about gender variant people of color, Black, Indigenous people of color? What what were their experiences like? There's a little bit of an imbalance, but like you say, it's a it seems like a wide open wide open town, too. <laughs> <laughs> I hope um, the listeners get that joke. <laughs> if not, just look it up, everybody. <laughs> yeah. So, I guess my la- last question. Well, last question is: Were there? I I'm, I want to end on I want to end on a positive high note. I want to end on you know your website, which is pretty amazing website, and you have a little video there about yourself <laughs> <laughs> somewhere in England, I think, <laughs> with your your female wife, uh-huh. if I may call her that, and 
<laughs> with all with the going to the different places. Um, I've seen it a couple of times. You go to the different places to, to tell me about that video. And everybody, you should all go check out Jen Mannion's website. It, it's amazing. I'm looking at it right now, especially the the snapshot of the <laughs> where you're you know you're leaned against a wall and female husband is just it it's just oh amazing it's you know <laughs> so tell, I, I basically made a promo trailer for the book <laughs> using iMovie um mm. and I had you know we were in London doing research a couple different times and the picture that you describe is from it was a little installation it was called Sailor Town and I think it was the city, the city of London has two museums. One is at the heart of London and the other one, it's in the East End, not that far from where uh, James and Mary Howe uh, lived and the, where their tavern was and where there's this pitch, you know, the horse from the White Horse Tavern, there's still a post there on the corner. So we went to see their tavern and we tried to find them in the cemetery um, of the church where they were donors and we couldn't really find their headstones or anything, but we were just kind of exploring that area. And that's where this museum is, the city of London's, I think it's called Docksides, um, like their Eastern maritime centered outpost, which had an amazing exhibit actually about slavery and sugar when we were there, but then a lot of the pictures in that video are from this little um, thing called Sailor Town <laughs> that they have. I think, I think it's so great. You know, it's very 2020 making a video uh, promo for your book <laughs> and it's very queer and very trans the great, way you did it. <laughs> great. Great. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> well, I think that concludes our interview. Um, thank you, Jen Mannion. Um, this was my first interview as a host on the LGBTQ Studies channel on the New Books Network. I'm very happy that it was with you. And I look forward to your next book, whatever that may be. Do, would you like, do you have a project in mind that you want to share or, or, or no? No, but uh, it was a pleasure talking to you. And I look forward to your book which is going to do all the right next things that need to happen. So why don't, why don't we end on you telling us what you're working on? Cause it's important. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Thank you. Um, well, I'm my work, my, my, my fields in, in my department are African American history is my major field. Latinx history and LGBTQ history are my minor fields. And I'm focusing on, I, I love social history. I love old school social historians, even though, you know, updates have been made to the social history methodology. I, I love old school social historians so much from the 1970s and 1980s. Um, but I, I'm, basically a social history of the transgender movement that centers black and and or latinx people so i'm looking at the role that criminalization plays in forming transgender identity subjects but also politics um I think a lot about the interventions that Robert and Kelly made in the 1990s about thinking about politics with a small p in African-American history and before the civil rights movement or the kinds of small acts of resistance, like speaking really loudly in segregated trains and complaining about it in the, in the presence of white people, you know, as an act of resistance, for example, that's from his art article, um, We Are Not What We've Seen. Um, so I think a lot about, I, I think a lot about, what trans politics becomes in the 20th century and what the roots of those are. And so my work sits in the interventions or in the intersections of, of race and gender and gender variance. So that's, that's what I'm looking at. I think I draw a lot on um, oral histories, luckily, because I'm a 20th century historian and yeah, that's, that's what I hope to do uh, something in the future. I'm not quite yet a candidate, so I haven't quite proposed my prospectus yet, but those are the questions that interest me. Well, it's very, very exciting and important work. Thank you. I appreciate it. And I really appreciate you being here with me today and for writing your amazing book. I mean, just let me just reiterate that 
it's just a very, very important intervention. It, you're gonna, you're an interlocutor of mine, and and just you know breaking down those basic assumptions that that sexuality isn't everything in LGBTQ history. That gender is a lot, and gender nonconformity is actually a lot, and actually sometimes the entrance point to queerness is gender nonconformity, either through criminal, through criminality, through the law, or you know through other through other ways. Um, so. So yes, I'll, I'll take your book with me forward and thank you again. I had a very lovely time with you today. I did as well. Nice talking with you.